This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Does our responsive government actually care about anything other than accumulating power? Listen to the political dialogue that passes for news, and you will soon hear someone call for responsive government. The idea behind the well-worn phrase is simple. One of the virtues of Republican government is in its ability to respond to the needs and desires of the people who are presumably the source of its authority. Unfortunately, in the modern age, government is inclined to resist people's will. The overall pattern is for politicians to leave real problems unsolved because that posture helps them continue in their lofty positions. That tendency showed up in the recent discussion over the national debt. Only at the last minute, when disaster appeared imminent, did government leaders even discuss an agreement. Even then, it was a temporary stopgap that did little more than kick the can down the road for another day and another crisis. On May 23rd, Mr. John Horvat described the situation in his article, Dealing with the Madman on the Debt Ceiling. While some of the political situations may have changed slightly since mid-May, the core problems are all too real. The debt ceiling debate is hurling the nation toward a potential fiscal disaster. After June 1st, the government risks not having enough money to meet debt and operating expenses. A default will undermine the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency and what is left of the world order. The media are turning the debate into a circus by insisting that the only solution is to hand a blank check to the government and continue spending at will. Anything less, they say, is dangerous. Such thinking is absurd and catastrophic. What needs to change is not so much the budget, but the mindset that saddles America with this mountain of debt. The Republican response to the debt ceiling crisis is reasonable. It does not deny the need to raise the debt ceiling under the present lamentable circumstances. It proposes minor restraints, guidelines, and freezes on spending as a condition of raising the ceiling. The demands would merely return the government's 2024 discretionary spending to fiscal 2022 levels. It would cap annual budget growth to 1% and bring back Clinton-era welfare work requirements. Beyond the haggling, the most important part of the bill is the message that the present course of economic self-destruction has to change. Current spending levels are destroying the nation. Elected officials seem unable to think beyond the next election cycle. They must think of the nation's common good and plan long term. The GOP bill, titled the Limit, Save, Grow Act, at least takes some initial steps in the right direction. However, the liberal position regarding debt is full of wrong premises. Liberals argue that with low interest rates, it makes sense to invest in the future. So-called free money allows the government to spend at sustainable levels and even save money by spending now rather than when rates eventually go up. This argument no longer holds, since interest rates are rising. 
it becomes even more dangerous and expensive to borrow. For example, the cost of servicing the national debt now stands at $460 billion, well over half of the $842 billion defense budget for 2023. With or without interest, the principal still must be repaid. Money is never free. The present administration has further increased the debt by several trillion dollars through its stimulus bills and spending packages. Even at low interest rates, reckless spending injects vast amounts of cash into the system, causing inflation and the frenetic intemperance of unbalanced markets. Another wrong premise is an implicit and often explicit affirmation of modern monetary theory, MMT. This warped thinking holds that a country can borrow indefinitely if it does so in its own currency. Since each country controls the minting of its currency, any crisis can be avoided by issuing new money to take care of all debts. Thus, Many liberals believe that a nation's spending ability is limitless. It will have no consequences, nor should anyone even worry about debt. Warping the purpose of government from a provider of the nation's common good into a provider for its well-being of its citizens and a growing population of illegal aliens those in power should spend whatever is needed to provide for all needs and entitlements. Government can borrow and spend at will. However, a nation cannot always borrow its way out of a crisis. There will come a time of reckoning when people will question its value, causing a crash. The landing will not be a soft one. This is not a discussion about money or the lack of it. The real issue is the liberal mindset, characterized by a refusal to live within constraints. Anyone who proposes sacrifice, no matter how small, must be demonized as heartless and hateful toward the less fortunate. This rejection of restraint in small things has metastasized to crisis levels in the world's largest economy. Thus, many liberals refuse to negotiate about the debt ceiling. They will not debate the merits of any proposals, because any concession to sacrifice will give rise to yet more limitations. The blank check is the only acceptable solution because it makes all fantasies possible and all restrictions unnecessary. The obsession with total unrestraint has the effect of turning the debate into something irrational. The enraged and radical left becomes willing to jeopardize the nation and the world economy to maintain its fantasy of unlimited free money. This craze to drive the nation into ruin endangers the nation. It creates an illogical debate where government spending cannot be challenged. This argument with mad men and mad women threatens to sink the whole ship. 
Tragically, it makes raising the debt ceiling necessary and even urgent, if possible, with conditions. The economy cannot be instantly repaired by turning off the money and jumping off the fiscal cliff. At the same time, a default's impact will wreak havoc upon the world and favor America's enemies. As painful as it is to admit it, a deal is the lesser evil when negotiating with those madmen whose actions will sink the ship that sets sail without lifeboats or life jackets. The more important question is what will be done with the deal. Will it once more be used to kick the can down the road? Can it be used to inform a real debate? Instead of playing periodic games of physical chicken, America needs to question existential premises held by liberals and conservatives alike about the nature of government, life, and liberty. Too many believe that life must be spent as if on a never-ending cruise, underwritten by the courtesy of the federal government. At some point, the party must end. America must reject the socialist mindset, in which the government tries to be all things to all people through its largesse and control. The nation must likewise reject the notions that restraint is always bad and sacrifice must be avoided. This inquiry beyond an entitled self could provoke a reevaluation of what matters most in life. It could give rise to a new dedication, commitment, and loyalty to family, community, and the church, giving life meaning and purpose. What is missing is what Russell Kirk called the permanent things, which are those norms of courage, duty, honor, justice, and charity that owe their existence and authority not to big governments, but to God himself. Until then, the nation will continue staring into the fiscal abyss. Even when the politicians attempt to look like they care about the issues that confront the public, they are usually pandering to a particular group. The motivation is to persuade that group to lend their support at election time. One marvelous example is President Biden's proposal to excuse some student loan debt. While this is a real problem for many, the motivation behind the proposal is to persuade large numbers of college-educated young people to vote for Mr. Biden in 2024. However, all that this plan will do is shift the burden from the backs of those who borrowed the money to the taxpayers. In his essay, Those Who Profited from Student Loans Should Help Pay for the Damage They Caused, Mr. Edwin Benson argues that the responsibility lies elsewhere. In August 2022, President Biden announced a program to relieve student loan recipients of their obligation to repay $20,000 of their loans. Unsurprisingly, the mood was very popular with those recipients. Some argued it swayed the 2022 off-year elections. However, it was controversial because of its unfairness. First, 
the action was grossly unfair to those who already paid off their student loans. Second, the program would tax millions of workers to pay the debts of a relatively more prosperous segment of the population. Third, and most significant, forgiving debts is not among the president's powers. This plan could be derailed in one of three ways. The president or a future president could rescind it. Congress could overrule the president. Finally, the Supreme Court could declare it unconstitutional. Recently, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Biden versus Nebraska, which may decide the plan's constitutionality. A House of Representatives subcommittee has also held hearings on the subject. Thus, it is an excellent time to consider the goals and effects of the entire student loan program. The grandfather of the current student loan is often referred to as the GI Bill of Rights, passed shortly before the end of World War II. The government subsidized the educational and living expenses of veterans who wanted to go to college for three years. This action delayed the re-entry of thousands of returning soldiers into the labor market. Congress hoped this detour would prevent an economic downturn like that which broke out after World War I. The GI Bill had massive effects. College education was suddenly available to many Americans. In the late 40s, roughly half of the college students were veterans. This training, in turn, expanded access to the learned professions, law, medicine, and so on. A dozen years later, the Soviets sent out the first artificial satellite into space. Suddenly, many were concerned about America's education system, especially in science and technology. This concern triggered the National Defense Education Act, which granted scholarships and loans to American students who showed promise in mathematics, science, engineering, or foreign languages. Today's student loan program came in 1965 as part of President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. As he signed the bill, he spelled out his hopes. Quote, The Higher Education Act will open a new door for the young people of America, for them, and for this entire land of ours. It is the most important door that will ever open, the door to education. And this legislation is the key which unlocks it. To thousands of young men and women, this act means the path to knowledge is open to all who have the determination to walk it. Unquote. The idea was simple. College educations were the road to greater financial prosperity. However, most young people needed help to pay for that education. No bank would loan so many dollars to a student without collateral. So, the federal government guaranteed the bank that the loan would be repaid. The country expected that the actual cost would be minimal. After all, the students would repay the loans from their higher post-college incomes. 
Until the early 80s, the program worked as it was designed. For thousands, including this author, the relatively small student loans filled the gap between the costs of education and the student's resources. However, as time passed, Congress made the loan programs increasingly generous. Universities could raise tuition and fees because the students could easily borrow the money to pay them. Incoming freshmen were treated to free lunches, surrounded by tables of bankers eager to make the guaranteed loans. College financial aid advisors facilitated the process of borrowing. Students who didn't know how to fill out a check signed contracts for multiple thousands of dollars. For a new high school graduate, the effect was mesmerizing. To attract more students and compete with other schools, the schools began to provide ever more lavish amenities. They built increasingly expensive dormitories, recreational facilities, and fitness centers. Better libraries and highly qualified faculty members had limited appeal. Free pizza at midnight and luxurious amenities drew them in. The long-term results of this feeding frenzy are catastrophic. Many college graduates are over $100,000 in debt. For those in law, medical, and other graduate programs, the debts will continue to climb. Those with degrees in relatively low-paying fields, like education or social work, must repay these massive debts and living expenses with incomes that will not pay for it all. The worst off are those who borrowed money but never finished college, and there are many of them. Their debts may not be as high. However, most are not making college-level incomes. All told, the outstanding debt in 2021 was $1.7 trillion. COVID-related payment moratoriums have increased that total. At this point, it may sound like this article is making the case for Mr. Biden's plan, which is not the case at all. There is no question that the students should honor their debts. The taxpayers, who received no benefit from these massive expenditures, should not be held accountable for another's obligations. However, that leaves the greatest beneficiaries, the colleges themselves, off scot-free. Colleges pulled in astronomical amounts from this process, far above the general inflation rate. From 1980 to 2021, the cost of living went up by 219%, according to the Consumer Price Index. However, the prevailing inflation rate was nothing compared to the increase in college tuition. From 1980 to 2020, the average cost of tuition went up by almost 1,200%, according to the National Center for Educational Statistics. In 2017, 
The Federal Reserve Bank of New York reported that college tuition increased by 60 cents for every dollar lent out in subsidized federal student loans. There was no need for these massive increases. The land and any previously existing buildings on campus were already paid for. The same number of students fit into the same rooms. Still, where did all the money go? Some of it went into the luxury accommodations described above. Much of it went into increased numbers of administrators. The rest went into endowments. The once prestigious Yale University is a fine example. According to the Yale News, the August Institution employed 3,500 administrators and managers in 2003, a number that increased by 45% by 2018. That increase had no relation to any increases in the student body. There were only 600 more students in 2018 than in 2003, an increase of 11%. The endowment increased even more rapidly. Between 2001 and 2021, Yale's endowment grew fourfold, from $10.7 billion to $42.3 billion in tax-free dollars. Writing for the American Mind, Inez Fetcher-Stepman lays the responsibility for the deteriorating situation squarely on the universities. Quote, Universities can charge whatever they want for their product, and students are stuck with insurmountable and disproportionate debt on the back end. Throw in millions of dollars in aggressive marketing to every graduating high schooler, largely 17 or 18 years of age, and the conduct of these institutions looks closer to what we would call predatory behavior in any other context. Unquote. The suggested solution is an intriguing one. Tax the universities to pay for the damage that they have caused. The simplest way to do this would be to end their tax-exempt status. Another possibility would be to charge the university a set percentage of the loans its current and former students still owe. As with most new ideas, working out the various legalities would require much work. Still, it takes little imagination to determine the reaction of the socialist wokesters to being taxed. Another issue that inspires pseudo-solutions is the environment. During the early 70s, the level of air and water pollution was indeed hazardous. With unusual vigor, the government swung into action. In the process, they created a new bureaucracy, the EPA. As air and water pollution decreased, the EPA's bureaucrats looked for new fields to conquer. In the late 70s, they began to hear about global cooling. Then, actual events contradicted that theory. The new bureaucrats wrote alarmingly about global warming. When the environment failed to confirm these opinions, the language shifted to climate change. This language is so vague that it is impossible to prove or disprove, but it sounds terrifying. 
No change is too great for the bureaucrats to contemplate. None of them care if the plan will work. They simply must do something. Mr. Gary Isbell evaluates the state of New York's latest plan in his essay, New York Governor's Ban of Natural Gas Will Send Residents Looking for Non-Greener Pastures. New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced the state will be officially bowing out of the natural gas business. Through relentless pressure from environmentalists, Hochul and the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority have caved in to green demands. The state will eliminate so-called fossil fuels. In a declaration of war against conventional energy, Hochul announced that New York is, quote, going to be the first state in the nation to advance zero emissions in new homes and buildings, unquote. This move will turn New York into a progressive green example of cutting ties with traditional energy sources and embracing wind and solar energy more fervently than ever. Thus, New Yorkers can no longer benefit from using clean, inexpensive natural gas. This ill-conceived agreement will make them more dependent on electricity with its sky-high utility prices. An overloaded electric grid may soon face blackouts and breakdowns. The significant victory for radical environmentalists will have a negative impact on daily lives. Hochul hopes that other states will soon follow suit, under the pretext of preserving the environment for generations to come. However, electrifying the future is fraught with problems that make it unsustainable and unreliable. Indeed, Hochul sees things quite differently from her constituents. A recent poll by Siena College found that barely 39% of registered New York voters supported banning fossil fuels in family homes by 2025. The governor also differs in her practice of energy usage. Rules for thee, but not for me, seems to be a consistent behavior with liberals, as Hochul has maintained gas stoves in the governor's executive mansion and her personal home in Buffalo, New York, while denying others the right to use gas. New York liberals deny the evidence that the cleanest, most reliable, and most abundant electricity is nuclear power generation. Radical environmentalists would prefer to eliminate progress then rely upon abundant, reliable, and inexpensive power from nuclear energy. In addition, natural gas is also clean burning. However, these facts are ignored in favor of using ugly, inefficient, and unreliable wind and solar power. The ban on natural gas is an ideological decision, not an economic or scientific one. New York made a huge statement toward leading the nation to misery by banning natural gas under its new budget. The green agenda will likely see more New Yorkers leaving for non-greener pastures in red states. The abolition of natural gas in New York will influence the national debate in many ways. 
Hochul's move will embolden less radical green politicians to adopt more radical dependency on electric energy. The strain on the national grid will endanger many necessities most Americans take for granted, such as plentiful water, sufficient heat during the winter, and air conditioning during the summer, especially for the elderly and infirm. This change could also impact medicine, hospitals, manufacturing, transportation, and infrastructure. The whole leftist liberal agenda gains from this move, since the left understands how to unite all its causes into one. The demand for green energy will meld into the call for structural changes. Finally, New Yorkers will face a significant financial burden, especially for those struggling to make ends meet. Currently, petroleum products generate 43% of the state's electricity, with only 6% coming from wind and solar. Thus, the green government mandates will force an expensive seven-fold expansion of unreliable and inefficient renewable sources that will be passed on to consumers. The proposed mandate will no doubt face legal challenges questioning whether governments can ban the use of natural gas. A decision by the United States Court of Appeals overturned a Berkeley, California ordinance abolishing so-called obsolete gas infrastructure. The role of the state is to promote the common good of all. Abolishing the use of natural gas, which provides for a substantial portion of New York's utilities, is not a mandate that favors the common good. It is nothing more than the forceful implementation of a leftist green agenda that aims to move society leftward toward misery. This concludes... Does our responsive government actually care about anything other than accumulating power? Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website www.returntoorder.org and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find Return to Order Moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.